Today on the Matt Wall Show, the dream is dead. Uh, Democrats are giving up on impeachment. Terrible tragedy. We'll talk about that. Also, a man is suing an abortion clinic on behalf of his unborn child who was aborted against his wishes. This is a case that could have enormous and enormously positive repercussions. So we'll talk about that. And uh, specifically, I want to talk about the ways that men are often marginalized in the abortion debate. So that and uh, many other topics today on The Matt Walsh Show. Well, Nancy Pelosi has uh, caused some consternation on the left because uh, she's she said in a, in a Washington Post interview that she does not now favor impeaching Trump. She said, um, I'm not for impeachment. This is news. I haven't said this to any press person before, but since you asked and I've been thinking about this impeachment is so divisive to this country that unless there's something so compelling and overwhelming and bipartisan, I don't think we should go down that path because it divides the country and he's just not worth it. Now, she did, though, uh, try to retain her resistance credentials by then going on to talk about how Trump is intellectually and ethically unfit for office, which even, you know, we're so used to hearing that kind of thing, but even a statement like that Uh, which is so common from Democrats about Trump, where they talk about how he's unfit for office. But uh, as recently as the Obama administration, for Republicans to say that he was unfit. Can you imagine a Republican saying that Obama was intellectually unfit for office? Uh, That would have been a huge scandal. And and there, there may have been a few Republicans or a few, some conservatives who said Obama was unfit for office. But That kind of language was considered a big deal. It was like, oh, you know. Um, But now this is just Democrats. Just they just, just it's just normal. It's just what they say. Uh, He's 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 unfit for office. He's uh, he's scum. He's he's awful. Ilhan Omar uh, said yesterday that Trump is not even human. And and yet again, that's just you know uh, uh, that's that's where uh, our rhetoric is now. That's where that's where that's the state of political discourse is where that's completely normal. But uh, she does think, anyway, Pelosi says that impeachment isn't a good idea. Now, think about this for a minute. Think about where we are um, that, first of all, it took Nancy Pelosi two years to say that she she doesn't want to impeach, even though that there were, even though there was never any reason to impeach. It took her two years to say, let's not impeach. And also that this news is a shock to other Democrats who really want impeachment, though, again, they have no basis for it. They have no reason. They just want it. And I, I've been saying all along that that's going to be the last straw for our democracy. Uh, the last straw will be when an oppositional party tries officially to remove a sitting president simply because they don't like him and they're opposed to his politics. Now, the Democrats don't really have the power to do that. That's the other thing. There's to impeach the president wouldn't accomplish anything um, because the impeachment is just sort of like an indictment. In order for there to be a trial and actually remove him from office, you need, I believe, two-thirds of the Senate. And of course, uh, they don't have anywhere close to two-thirds of the Senate to make that happen. So they don't have the power to do it. And that's part of the reason why no president has ever been successfully, uh, some few presidents have been impeached. But no president's been successfully removed from office because it re- it would require such an overwhelming amount of support. 
in the legislative branch that it is very difficult to do. So that protects us. And it turns out that our founding fathers were pretty smart dudes, you know, in the end. Um, they, they set it up so that you would probably need a really, really good reason, legitimate reason to actually remove a president. Now, if it's, if it was impossible to remove a president, then we would have tyranny. But if it's too easy, then you're going to have presidents getting kicked out left and right. And then you have a banana Republic. So we don't have that. Um, but I think we're moving in that direction. We, we haven't we haven't crossed that line yet because of the way that the system is set up. Our system prevents it. But the fact that the idea of impeachment was entertained for so long without reason, without cause, is uh, pretty frightening. All right. So enough politics. That was four minutes of politics. And we'll, we'll move on already because I think this is a, a more important, more interesting topic. Um, a man in Alabama by the name of Ryan Majors has been granted the right to sue an abortion clinic on behalf of his unborn child who was aborted uh, by his girlfriend against his wishes. Now, this this case, as you can imagine, has not been received well, to put it lightly, by by the pro-abortion side. I just saw an article in The Independent that is, ca is calling this case terrifying. This is a terrifying case. It's terrifying that a father can seek justice on behalf of his murdered child. Uh, terrifying if you're a child killer or an apologist for child killers. Now, this case is, is it's important uh, and it's being called unprecedented because it gives legal rights to an unborn baby. And that is, of course, enormously consequential in a very good way. But I think it's also extremely important because by extension, it's giving voice to the father. It's giving voice to the man as well as um, the child. There, in, in an abortion, there are three people involved. There are three people who are profoundly uh, affected. That would be the mother, the father, and the child, of course. But as our law stands right now, although there are three people involved, only one person has any say or any rights, and that would be the mother. So this case gives a voice to the other two people involved. And in fact, I wanna, I'm going to play a, a, a quick uh, clip of a local news report featuring this father, uh, because I just want you to see in his own words, uh, I think it's pretty powerful. And this is, this is him uh, talking about the situation in his own words. Every time a woman goes to the Alabama Women's Center with the intent of getting an abortion, she gets this pamphlet. And that's where the suit alleges that Brian Major's girlfriend did receive her abortion. And in this pamphlet, as she had to have flipped through it, if she did get this abortion at this clinic, it even shows the different sizes of the baby at different points in the pregnancy. And, and for Ryan to know that right here around the six week mark, according to that suit, that's when his girlfriend did get that abortion. He says, even at this point, it's still a decision. He can't seem to wrap his head around. I'm here for the men who actually want to have their baby. It's been nearly two years since Ryan Major's girlfriend aborted their baby. It was just like my whole world just fell apart. And today he lives with a constant reminder of what could have been. Right here in the first rows I have a due date and it's just when the baby was supposed to be born. Majors filed a lawsuit in Madison County Wednesday, suing Alabama Women's Center, their employees and the pharmaceutical company who makes the medication used in an abortion. I believe that 
every child from conception is, is a baby and it deserves to live. I talked to Dalton Johnson, who owns the Alabama Women's Center. He wasn't aware the suit had been filed, but did offer some insight into abortion procedures. The suit says the baby was aborted at six weeks. Johnson said at that point in the pregnancy, a woman can choose how she wants to end the pregnancy, either by medication or surgery. I just tried to plead with her and plead with her and just talk to her about it and see what I could do. But in the end, there was nothing I could do to change her mind. And even though it's too late for majors to stop his girlfriend's abortion, he said he wants to give a voice to other would-be dads who find themselves in the same spot. Even though there's nothing I can do for, for the situation that I was in, there is something I can do for the future situations for other people. So I, I think he's a hero. What he's doing is, is heroic. And you see here what is perhaps the most forbidden subject in, uh, in public discourse today, the most taboo thing to bring up, um, and that is the plight of men who, uh, whose children are aborted against their wishes. These are silent uh, victims who we aren't allowed to talk about. But the fact is that this man, Ryan, is not an aberration. He is not alone. Uh, there are many men like him. There are many men who are victims of abortions themselves because their children are killed without their consent. It's true that the opposite also happens quite a bit, right? There are plenty of situations where you've got cowardly, weak, pathetic, disgusting men who pressure their girlfriends to get abortions. And that does happen. We hear about that sort of thing all the time. But then there's also this. Uh, what about the men who are pleading the other way? who beg the mother of their children not to do it. Can you imagine, just try to put yourself in the shoes of this man for a minute. Can you imagine you conceive a child and you're excited to be a father and then the mother of the child says, I'm going to kill the baby and there's nothing you can do about it. You, you cannot stop me. Can you imagine being in that position. It's, it's impossible to even conceive. Of course, pro-abortion people are panicking over this, like I said, claiming that this is all about, you know, this is all about controlling women's bodies. So Jessica Valenti, who's an especially vile pro-abortion feminist and a sociopath, was ranting about this case on Twitter, uh, predictably saying that, uh, this is her word. She said, this isn't, about, this isn't about anything other than controlling women's bodies. And then she added that she, she also hates Ryan's face. She hates his face, she said, because she is, uh, as I said, hateful and vile. Um, there's just, uh, there, there aren't enough bad things you could, you could say about the woman. But of course, this is not about controlling women's bodies. And what does it say about pro-abortion people that they can't conceive of any other reason why a man might not want his child to be killed. Like, they literally can't understand that a father might actually just not want his child to be killed, not because it's part of any patriarchal conspiracy to control women, but maybe a father really just loves his child and doesn't want the child to be killed. They can't understand that. They actually don't understand it. They say, what do you mean love it? Love your child. What is that? I don't know. Nobody does that. 
they can't understand it. They think, no, 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 if a man doesn't want his kid to be killed, it could only be B because there must be some, some dastardly motivation behind it. Because these people are so empty and soulless inside that they, they can't understand the concept of loving an unborn child. They don't even, they, they don't think it's possible. Um, yet the fact remains that this baby is not uh, the woman's body. Okay, this, this is not about controlling the woman's body because the thing that is at stake here is not the woman's body, but in fact the body of an entirely separate person who is the baby. And that person is 50% the result of the woman and 50% the result of the man. That, ba- that, that, that other human, that third party involved, would not exist without the man. So that child is not the woman's body, and that child does not belong to the woman. That child belongs, first of all, to God, but in terms of, in earthly terms, that child belongs just as much to the father as he does to the, to the mother. Um, the, you know what? It's, it's not even like 51-50. It's not even that. It is 50-50. Um, or maybe better yet, 100%, 100%. That, that child, that's the better way of putting it, that child is 100% the son of this father and 100% the son of the mother as well. Um, think about the mixed messages that we send here with, with these sorts of situations where the message from um, the left, and, and by extension from our culture, is what we say to men is, when the baby's in the womb, we say, uh, that's none of your business, none of your concern, you have no vested interest in this, uh, you, you have no say, you have no rights, uh, it doesn't matter what you want, if she wants to keep the baby, she's going to keep the baby, if she wants to kill the baby, she's going to kill the baby, it, your opinion does not matter. And that's the message for nine months. That's what we say to men. Your opinion doesn't matter. You have no interest in this. It's not your child. It doesn't matter. Mind your own business over and over and over again. That's what we say for nine months. And then the moment that child emerges from the birth canal, then we flip it around and say, where's child support? You need to be here. Don't be a deadbeat. Where did you go? You need to be here taking care of this child. Now, of course, I agree that um, when the child is born, the, the father needs to be there and, and shouldn't be a deadbeat and everything, but it's a mixed message. Uh, in, in one sense, if the father that's a deadbeat and, and goes off and doesn't want to take care of his child, well, he's just, I guess all he's doing is uh, he, he took you seriously when you said it's, not his, it's none of his concern. And the father said, okay, well, I guess not then. All right, well, Fine. But even someone like Jessica Valenti, uh, I don't know if she has any kids, but, uh, you know, I'm sure I'm sure if, if she had a kid, she would be, wow, no, that father needs to be here taking care of this kid. Yeah, you say that now. What about before? What if I take you up on your, uh, what if I actually take all of your blathering seriously about how this is just your body? Well, hey. There was, there was, there's no baby at all. It's just your body. So I guess when the baby comes out, that's like your, that's your organ or your limb that is uh, some suddenly come to life. And, but it's still yours. It's not mine. 
No, we. It, it, that's not. It, it, that's not fair to the men. That's not fair to the baby. Um, it's just. It doesn't make any sense. That child. There needs to be a consistent message to men. And the message is from the very beginning, from conception. This is your child, and you need to be here for the child, and and not just when the child is born, by the way, but from the very beginning. Uh, the mother of your child is pregnant. You need to be there for her. You need to be supporting her. You need to be interested. You need to be all these and take her to doctor's appointments. I mean, be involved. Uh, get married to her if you're not yet, by the way. That should be the message. See, that's a message that, that works for everybody. You notice that? That message works for everyone. It works for the child. It works for the mother. It works for the father. Everybody is built up. Everybody is lifted up. Everyone is putting it put into a safer and better situation when that's our message from conception. But when we try to say that, oh, no, you know, you need to wait nine months for your fatherly instinct to set in. Uh, and up until that point, this is none of your business. Well, once you start doing that, uh, well, you can't do it. And what's going to happen is you know, sort of you're going to have one principle that's extended in one direction either way. So if the principle that we're telling the fathers when the child is in the womb, if what we're telling them is this is none of your business, not your child, don't worry about it, get out, mind your own business, then in many cases that principle is going to be extended beyond the womb. But if you go the other way and you say, no, this is your business, this is your child, this is 100% your responsibility, just till it gets 100% the woman's responsibility, then that principle will, will also be extended. It's a, it's a, you know, it's an interesting thing that the, the pro-life message um, has this effect, right, of lifting people up and uh, just making everyone's life better, protecting life, treasuring life. I mean, that's, that's the, it's pro-life. And that's why the the moniker of pro-choice doesn't mean anything because these people aren't about choice. Even they're not about choice. Pro-choice people are manifestly opposed to choice and freedom in so many, when it comes to so many other issues. But even when it comes to abortion, well, they, they, they're, only, they're only concerned about the choice of one person. Again, there are three people involved. They only care about the choice of one person, and that's the mother. And even then, they only care about the choice if she's choosing to abort. Uh, but if she chooses to keep the baby, well, then Planned Parenthood's got nothing for her. Planned Parenthood doesn't care. Planned Parenthood says, get out of here. If you're not going to kill the baby, we don't care. You go somewhere else. We're not going to help you. So they care about the choice of one person, and as long as it's only one particular choice. But the father has no choice. The, the baby has no choice. So pro-choice means nothing. Pro-life actually means something, though. Uh, in that people who are really pro-life, it, it really means that they just, they are in favor of, they think life is a beautiful thing and it should be treasured and protected. And I mean, how can you disagree? How can you be a living human being and disagree with that? All right. Um, so on a related note, but on, on the opposite end of the spectrum, on the opposite end of the fatherhood spectrum, I wanted to mention this because I saw this yesterday and uh, you see this kind of thing these days somewhat frequently. There was a guy, um, a verified account on Twitter, an author of some kind, I think, who uh, took to Twitter yesterday to complain that 
parenthood is really hard, really trying, very difficult. And he said uh, publicly that he regrets ever having his son. Okay, so this is, we just talked about Ryan Majors. This is like the opposite of Ryan Majors. Uh, that was a man who wanted to be a father, and this is someone who doesn't. So he said, uh, this guy he said he loves his son, loves his son, but he regrets having him. Says his wife feels the same way. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what he said. Um, now, I'm not going to put this guy's name out there because this isn't about sicking the mob on him. That's not the point. I just point to it because it's part of a trend that you find online. And it seems every few months that there's something like this. There was, I think it was a couple of months ago, we talked about it on the show. There was a Hollywood director, someone who went online and said the same thing, expressed regret about ever having a child. Um, and there have been articles about this and so on in the media. Uh, like I said, every few months you see this, some article about parents who regret having their kids. Or um, I remember, and I remember this well because it was right around the time when we were having our twins. Um, it was about five years ago. And there was a big article in, in one of the publications uh, written by a father who, the, him and his wife had had twins through IVF. And his life was just so miserable and so terrible and wah, wah. And he was whining about it and talking about how much he regretted having uh, these, these twins. So I remember that well, because that was right before we had twins ourselves. So you see this kind of thing, right? This is a sentiment that people feel apparently increasingly comfortable expressing publicly. And there are a couple of points that come to mind when I see this and when I read this guy's tweets uh, in particular. First of all, he says he loves his child. Of course, I love my child. I love my son. But I wish he was never born. Well, okay, then you don't love your child. And, and this is something that, that people do where we, we think of, you know, parent loving their child as this sort of automatic thing. And so we assume that, well, everyone loves a child. And so even if someone says, yeah, I, I, I love my child. I mean, I, I, I wish that he didn't exist, but I, of course, I, of course I love him. Well, then by definition, you don't love him. Sometimes you, you, you hear the same thing from uh, women who abort their child. They say, well, I, I love my child, but it just wasn't the right time. No, you didn't love them. That is the opposite of loving them. So, no, this guy, you do not love your, you clearly do not love him. If you ever find yourself wishing that a person didn't, it's not even, this, in, in some ways, this is even worse than wishing that someone was dead, as horrible as that is. As horrible as, as horrible as it is to even conceive of someone wishing that their child was dead, um, when someone regrets being a parent, well, what you wish is that you that this person, your child, never existed. You you want to negate. You wish that you could negate their entire existence. So that's not love. Second thing is, let's be clear about this. It is one hundred percent about weakness and selfishness on the part of this man and his wife, too, if, if she really does feel the same way. Uh, and that is, only, that is only highlighted by the fact that he has one child. Okay, you have one. You've got two adults versus one child. Now, look, there could be extenuating circumstances sometimes that make it 
especially difficult or challenging to have one kid if there's a severe medical problems or some other situation that can make that difficult. But he didn't mention anything like that. So it seems like this is just a normal situation. And in, in, in a normal situation with a healthy child, um, one kid is really not difficult at all. What are you doing whining about it? But parents of one, of, you know, parents that just have one kid, you hear this a lot, they'll constantly talk about how difficult, how hard it is, how difficult. I mean, come, I, I, there are challenges involved in it, I know, but you got two parents versus one kid. How could you possibly, how overwhelming could it possibly, the two of you and one of him, how bad could it ever be? Um, if you're feeling that overwhelmed by one kid, it just means, this is all that it means. It just means that you are completely unwilling to make even the slightest adjustments to your life. Because with one kid, uh, you're going to have to make some sacrifices. You're going to have to make some adjustments. But not even the adjustments you make don't even have to be that serious. With one kid, you could basically continue living your life almost like you did before. I mean, you could still go out pretty much whenever you want, just get a babysitter. I mean, to get a babysitter for one kid is not that expensive. Um, you've got, you know, one parent or the other can always go out and get time to themselves, and the other parent can watch the one kid. You can bring one kid with you pretty much anywhere, and, and you know, it's not a big thing to a restaurant. And if the kid gets a little bit rowdy or something, you can, one of the parents can take him out for a minute. But when it's just one kid, you can do these things. It's when you start getting more kids that, then all of a sudden you really are changing your, your lifestyle uh, considerably. So this is what jumped out at me is that if you're feeling this way with one kid, that just means that you, you are not willing to make any sacrifices. You don't want to change your life at all. That's how selfish you are. Uh, and yes, parenthood will be an awful, terrible, miserable thing if you are totally unwilling to sacrifice. But if you can just get over the fact that you're going to have to make some adjustments in your life, if you can accept that and move on and accept the parameters of your new life, well, then there's a whole lot of joy to be discovered. But sadly, there are many parents who uh, can't do that because they are so, so selfish and weak. You talk to adults sometimes. Uh, in fact, I was talking to someone, someone recently about this very subject. And um, they told me that their own parents, this was an adult, they told me their own parents would tell them as they were growing up that they, the parents, wish that this person had never been born. And you hear that sometimes. Uh, you know, adults who, who, who grew up with this, with parents who wished that they didn't exist. I mean, think about how weak and just selfish and, and narcissistic you have to be. Especially if at no point you listen, I, I remember when our um when our twins were born. We had now I we never had the experience of having one kid because we went right to twins. And um and when our twins were born, I can, I can distinctly remember that first night uh, with the kids with us. And that was really overwhelming. That was like, that was a moment of what 
did we just do? Um, but very quickly, even when it's a such a huge change, when you go from you know a family with no kids to two right away, um, very quickly, I, I think for most people, you just ex- even though it's very challenging, challenging to have to have a newborn. And, and and by the way, when I'm talking about how easy it is to have one kid, uh, I with the with the exception of the newborn stage, the newborn stage is doesn't matter how many kids one one newborn. Because of the sleeping factor, if your if your newborn isn't sleeping for six months, well, uh, even if it is just one, that's going to be really that that is really hard. Um, but that doesn't last forever. You get you get over that, you get past that stage pretty quickly. But and even though it's very challenging in the newborn newborn stage, specifically because of the sleeping thing, I mean, you're not getting sleep that has an effect on you psychologically. There's no question about it. But even then, you you quickly accept. Right. For most people, you accept, well, this, okay, this is, this is what my life is now. This is my new existence. And any thought of, I wish it wasn't like this, or why did we do this? I mean, that, all that stuff just kind of evaporates. It doesn't mean anything anymore because this is simply your life. Wherever you go, there you are, right? This is your life. But then there are parents who, I, I think for most parents, you accept your new existence very quickly, like within days. But then there are some parents who never do. They go years and they can never accept it. And that is nothing but selfishness and weakness. And that's what we should call it. I don't want to hear any of this, uh, well, we have to be understanding of them and, you know, let's be sympathetic to them. No, I'm not sympathetic to them at all. Stop being weak, you coward. Be a man, man up. Get get over yourself, really. All right, um, I want to get to some emails. You can always email the show, mattwalshow at gmail.com, mattwalshow at gmail.com. All right, um, I think we're going to do just one email uh, in the interest of time here. Let me see if I can find the one that was interesting. Okay, this is from Joanna. She says, hi, Matt. I'm getting caught up on all your podcasts. Went back to the beginning and have been listening to most of them. I just listened to your podcast on the flat earth theory. Those are from a few, few months ago. Have you seen the documentary Behind the Curve? It's all about the flat earth theory and its proponents. I found it very fascinating. I was wondering if you've heard of it slash seen it. Well, I hadn't heard of it or seen it. I got this email over the weekend and I hadn't heard of it or seen it, Joanna, until I read this email. And uh, I was in a hotel. I was on the road over the weekend and looking for something to watch. So I, I took this suggestion and I watched this documentary about the flat earth theorists. Uh, and if you want to go watch it, Behind the Curve is what it's called. My God, it, it was really like gawking at a car wreck. In fact, it was like gawking at people who are gawking at a car wreck and arguing about whether or not an alien caused it. That, that's what it was like. It was disturbing, uh, darkly hilarious, very interesting, but it made my faith in humanity plummet to an all-time low. And it was never that high to begin with. So if you haven't seen it, uh, this movie, Behind the Curve, it's, it's about the flat earth theorists who we can't even really call theorists, right? The flat earth theory is not really a theory um, because for something to be a theory, as a, as a scientist in the documentary explained, something has to, if something is a theory, it needs to be falsifiable and not already falsified. And then I would add a third criterion that it needs to have explanatory power, meaning it has to sufficiently explain what we see occurring around us in order for it to really be a theory. 
Um, but flat earth, the flat earth thing has already been falsified for thousands of years, and thus it is no longer falsifiable. Uh, like if you're going to reject the thousands of different falsifications of this insane idea and invent out of whole cloth these cinematic conspiracies that explain everything away that you see, well, then it's graduated to something that is both falsified and unfalsifiable, which is peak crazy. When you've got something that's already been falsified but and also can no longer be falsified anymore because of this fortification of conspiracy theory that you've erected, well, that, that's just that's as crazy as it gets. And then also the flat earth theory has no explanatory power um, because, for instance, it, it can't even explain something as simple as, well, when astronauts go into space, they can orbit the Earth in the International Space Station and see the globe. So your flat earth, theory, flat earth theory has to be able to explain that. And just saying, oh, no, they're lying. It's a conspiracy. That's not ex an explanation. Uh, to reject reality is not a good explanation for reality. But I thought what made the documentary fascinating, especially, is just to see how these people um, get sucked into this crazy belief, how they justify it to themselves. And then this is, to me, was the most interesting part. It shows how the flat earthers are so addicted to conspiracy theories that they end up separating into factions and like denominations and then coming up with conspiracy theories about each other. So there's a, there was a, um, a, a certain prominent flat earther, uh, this kind of the, the spokeswoman for flat earth theory, apparently, and other flat earthers have come up with a conspiracy theory that she is a CIA agent working for Warner Brothers for some reason or something like that. Uh, and, and this is just what they, they, they love conspiracy theories so much, they just can't help it. They make it about each other. There was an interesting moment in the documentary where that woman, I forget her, I think it was Patricia was her name. Um, she was talking about uh, these conspiracy theories that people have about her, including there are some people who think that she's a reptilian alien creature, by the way, shapeshifter. Uh, and she was saying, she, there, was just, there was this brief moment where you could see this glimmer of light. There was, there was this moment of, of recognition, very briefly, where she said, she said, I don't know, these people come up with crazy conspiracy, conspiracy theories about me. Uh, I, I don't, is that what I'm doing? Am I like them? And then she quickly shook, shook that off and said, no, 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 I'm different. I'm totally different. But there was that moment, it almost dawned out on her, almost. It's very interesting. Um, and the other thing I think that it shows is how people invent and maintain these conspiracy theories and also why they do so psychologically. Um, and so it's, it's interesting. I, I would go and it, it's, it's, it, I think as a, as a psychological portrait of conspiracy theorists, uh, it's worth watching. And the, the main thing you see about how conspiracy theories operate is, and you've, you've, you've probably already noticed this from other conspiracy theories, but all they need is just one allegedly unexplained detail. Uh, just one. 
and they can they can build an entire mythology out of that one tiny little gap in the official narrative, even if it's not really a gap. So, uh, for instance, the 9-11 truthers, the big thing for them, especially early on, was, well, uh, jet fuel uh, doesn't burn hot enough to melt steel. And then that was all they needed. They were off to the races. And of course you say, well, but yes, it, it, it burns hot enough to weaken steel and then it collapses under its own weight. But uh, by the time you've already offered that correction, they're way over there. There's no getting them back. So with flat earthers, they have a, a couple little things like that where they say, oh yeah, well then what, what about this? Um, and it's always something like, well, if I stand really far away from a city, I can still see the, the, the skyline. But if we're on a if if it's if we're on a a globe, then I shouldn't be able to see it because it should be on the other side of the globe, and that that's all the logic they need. And of course, you say, well, yes, but it's a really big globe, so you have to be really far away from the thing to not be able to see it. If you're only a couple of miles away, you'll still be able to see it. But um, it doesn't matter. All they need is just that one little excuse, and in that gap, they can build this entire fantasy. Um, interesting to see. All right, we'll leave it there. Thanks for watching, everybody. Thanks for uh, being here, and Godspeed. Hi, everyone. It's Andrew Claven, host of The Andrew Claven Show. The most important person in America right this minute is Tucker Carlson, because Tucker Carlson is fighting the fight we have to win, the fight for free speech. I'll talk about it on The Andrew Claven Show. I'm Andrew Claven.